From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Childhood Cancer Organization, almost 16,000 children in the U.S. are diagnosed with cancer every year, and one-fourth of them, unfortunately, won't survive the disease. A cancer diagnosis turns the lives of the entire family upside down. In an effort to raise funds for research and family support, September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. On today's program, we'll hear from two specialists who work with pediatric cancer families. Also on the program, we'll preview the upcoming Mayo Clinic documentary with the film's executive producer, Ken Burns. And does aspirin help prevent heart attack and stroke? All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. There are four words that no parent or family ever wants to hear. Your child has cancer. Families facing pediatric cancer experience a wide range of feelings. Scared, overwhelmed, frustrated, helpless, even hopeless. And each family member may experience different emotions and at different times, making it difficult to navigate and support each other. While every family's experience with childhood cancer is different, it's definitely a stressful situation for everyone involved. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Sarah McCarthy. Welcome to the program and welcome to Mayo Clinic, Dr. McCarthy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, both right here and in Rochester. Did you work somewhere before you came to Mayo? I did. I actually um, was at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. So I did my fellowship there and then spent uh, seven years on faculty there. And what attracted you to Rochester? Uh, actually, a lot. The first time I came to Mayo, um, I was interviewing for a job that I told them I uh, wasn't going to take, and <laughs> they encouraged me to come down anyway. And I was just so drawn by um, the people here and the work that's being done. And so when uh, another position opened up in pediatric psychology, I actually jumped on the opportunity and relocated here. And Dana-Farber, a great place, too. Yes, <laughs> absolutely wonderful. I suspect your job can be pretty difficult at times. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. When people ask me what I do and I tell them that I um, work within pediatric oncology, um, they usually look at me like I'm crazy. But, um, you know, I have the opportunity every day to work with just absolutely amazing children and parents and siblings, as well as uh, providers, nurses, physicians, uh, child life specialists. And pediatric cancer is difficult. And it there are times that it can be really devastating, but at the heart of it, it's children. And so every day I get to go to work and I work with children and children are resilient and positive and absolutely incredible. And that's why I do what I do. But tell us about a typical day. Uh, so there oftentimes is not a typical day, um, but um, many days I will see outpatient consults in the morning. And so these are 90-minute um, slots for um, children and parents um, oftentimes dealing with medical illnesses, so not just uh, oncology but other illnesses as well. And they're referred to me for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's adjustment to the news of the diagnosis. Um, this is often a time um, for many illnesses, but especially pediatric cancer, where families really struggle. And Research has shown that this is actually where distress for most families is the highest, that they've heard those words, your child has cancer, and um, oftentimes they're just absolutely devastated and in shock. And so sometimes they'll meet with me to process, you know, just what this means. Um, 
I um, will sometimes uh, meet with parents to talk with them about how best to tell the child about their cancer, what words to use, um, how to explain treatment to them. You know, one thing we know is that it is so important to be honest with children about their diagnosis and about their treatment. And by doing so and explaining in uh, their their illness to them in a, in a way that's appropriate for their age, um, it actually is very helpful to prepare them for what's coming. And and this can be just a very powerful thing. And so I'll talk with uh, sometimes families about that. Um, I also meet with children and families who are at the other end of the spectrum, so who may be approaching end of life, and it can help facilitate some of those very difficult conversations about what the child's wishes are, what they understand, and, and supporting the parents and siblings as well. What is the importance, or explain to me why you think it's important that a child be part of the decision-making of their treatment, why that is something that is so key? So, you know, I think that it, first of all, it um, this is a child's body. And so um, what we know is that when children don't have information, they make up things, that that's just how all of our minds work, and, and that's especially true with children. And so if we don't tell children what's going on, oftentimes they will think, this is so bad that they're not telling me. And they'll go to a situation which is even worse than what the actual uh, situation is. And so you know, by giving them information that's appropriate for their age, so how we explain cancer to a five-year-old is very different than how we would explain it to a 17-year-old, but giving them information that's appropriate for their age can actually really reduce anxiety because then they know what's going on. They know why they're coming into the hospital. Even explaining things like uh, port access. So many children with um, cancer have to have some kind of central access, either a port cath or a, a central line. And um, with the so port, that's a catheter. It's that a catheter. Goes into their vein. Yeah. Yes. So it's um, so many children with cancer have ports, and so these are actually placed underneath their skin. Um, and so when they're not accessed, they can do all the things that kids should be doing: running around, playing, uh, swimming, things like that. And then when they are accessed, they're accessed by uh, cleaning it and putting a needle in. And so simply explaining and showing a child what that's going to look like before it happens can be very empowering to them. We use things like medical play. We have amazing child life specialists who will put ports in stuffed animals, dolls, <laughs> you name it, they've done it. And so we do a lot of preparation with the kids. And that has been shown to actually really decrease their anxiety throughout their treatment. When a child is going to be different from everybody else because they've got this thing going on, they lose their hair, whatever it might be, how do you help a kid get through that part yeah. of a cancer diagnosis? So we talk about it. Again, That you know, I think that the losing of the hair is something that is, I would say, one of the most difficult things, especially for parents um, and for teenage girls. Um, but often, you know, the younger kids sometimes aren't as bothered with it, but we definitely prepare them for it. And we give them a lot of choice, or I recommend giving them a lot of choice about you know, how this is going to look. And so for some kids, um, they are not at all interested in cutting their hair before. And it's not until their hair is really coming out. And oftentimes it's once it starts getting in their food um, that that's when they want it gone. Um, but really not for letting the child choose, you know, when, if and when they want the haircuts. And so then um, also talking to them about it. So if the kids are in school, then talking about, you know, if someone says something to you, what do you think you're going to say? And so we do some role playing and brainstorming about what they can say. And so then when they go into that situation, they're more prepared. Do you meet with the with the child and the parents together or sometimes individually or sometimes just the parents and then the kid? It, it's all combinations. So yeah. it really depends what the family needs. So initially, um, I often try to meet with everybody together just to get a sense of you know who they are as a family. Um, 
with the when I meet with the kid, a lot of I think my job, especially at the beginning, is really just getting to know them and and getting to know them beyond. Um, they're a lot more than just that cancer diagnosis. And so, you know, if someone was to sit in on one of my first few sessions, it looks like I'm just talking. And with younger kids, we do a lot of playing. But what I'm really doing is starting to establish a relationship with them. And same thing with the parents that I'm getting to know the parents, getting to know this family. And what that allows me to do is then if and when my services are needed, when a crisis comes up or an issue comes up, we have a relationship to, to go off of. And so I really I think that this, um, you know, with children with um, serious medical illnesses, whether it's cancer or something else, I think it, it really is so important to be able to have that time to get to know the families um, before crises come up um, because we're just I'm able to provide much better services um, if I know them and when they know me. Siblings as well? Yes, and I think siblings are often... Um, a little bit forgotten about, um, and, and that's what they tell us, how they feel that, um, you know, when a child is diagnosed with cancer, all attention goes to that child, and family routines are so disruptive. Um, oftentimes for children, um, at, the, at least at the beginning of cancer treatment, there's a, a prolonged hospital stay, and so they might actually be physically separated from um, the child with cancer and their, and their parents, and so siblings are at, at definite risk for um, having difficulties, and so not only do I meet with siblings, I also, when I, when I meet with families initially, I always try to talk about, you know, prepare parents for what, you know, could happen and give them a heads up, but also do some anticipatory guidance around ways to, you know, help um, facilitate the, the siblings adjustment even as we're just getting started with the treatment process. can be very difficult on a marriage too, can oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we do see higher rates of divorce um, in families who have experienced um, a serious medical illness of their child. And it is so extraordinarily stressful. I mean, it really, this is like the, you know, one of the most stressful things a, a parent will ever have to have to deal with. And people handle stress differently. And so, um, again, I think that's an issue that I, I try to talk with parents about up front of just, you know, how do you cope with stress? How does your partner cope with stress? You know, and how can we continue to support each of you? And how can you continue to support each other during this? Because, you know, one of the things that we know is a child's um, adjustment to their illness is really um, greatly influenced by the parent's adjustment. And so the more we can do for the parents, then we end up helping the child as well. All right, we've been talking about the emotional toll childhood cancer has on families with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Sarah McCarthy. Dr. McCarthy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from another member of a pediatric cancer care team. We'll learn about the important role of the child life specialist. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McCray. Child life specialists are part of the healthcare team, and their job is to help children and their families cope with the emotional and physical demands of an illness, an injury, or a prolonged hospital stay. One area where child life specialists play a very important role is for those families that are dealing with pediatric cancer. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and here to discuss his work with the smallest of cancer patients is Mayo Clinic Child Life Specialist Randall McKeeman. Welcome to the program, Randy. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Randy, good to have you here. You know, I've seen you so many times around the hospital, and I'm glad to finally figure out exactly what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is a child life specialist? Is it? Are you just a big kid? Uh, yes, I am. I'm just a big kid. We have to practice our elevator speech quite often because many people have never heard of child life specialists before. So probably the fastest way that we can ex- uh, describe what we do is to say that our job is to take the scary out of the hospital 
as much as possible. Uh, we do that in several ways. One, uh, we introduce into the hospital environment play, which is uh, sort of a very natural thing for children, something that they can identify very quickly. And when they see opportunities to play, they say, hey, maybe this is an okay place for kids to be. Another thing that we often do is provide education, uh, what we call preparation, preparing kids for experiences perhaps they've never had before. So they might want to know what it's like to have an MRI or a CT scan or go to the operating room and get anesthesia. So we can prepare them through play, medical play we would call that, playing through the experiences that they will be having. It's a very uh, easy way for a child to understand and uh, sort of go through the step-by-step processes that they will see. I think uh, that I've heard quite a few times when a child is really little, you know, someone that's three or four or five years old and gets diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. um, when you talk about taking the scary out of that, mm-hmm. one of the things that I have heard people say is, well, they don't know what they don't, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And so they don't even, or do they even know that it's a scary time or do they read it from their parents and those around them that obviously what's going on here is not a good thing? Right. I think that children really do pick up a lot from their parents' behavior and they can sense anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's quite a natural thing for them to do. At that age, they're many times short of uh, being reasonable or Mm -hmm. they have not figured out logic yet and they have a lot of imaginary things that go on. Uh, They sometimes imagine the worst. Uh, They are often scared of times when they have to be separated from parents in a new situation. It's normal for them to have the support of their parent close by. And so if they're being asked to do something different or unusual, or just being in a new environment, their go-to is the parent who will, in the best of circumstances, protect them and keep them safe. That's a a parent's job. Is there special training to become a child life specialist, or do you just have to have once been a kid? (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes I feel like I'm still a kid, and my joke is that my master's degree in child life allows me to be a kid the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But no, we have very specialized training The college coursework usually involves uh, child development, child and family studies, uh, developmental psychology, uh, and that's the underpinning of what we do. When people see us in the hospital, you know, what they see is play and playrooms, and uh, they don't always connect uh, the teaching behind that, the learning that we have done, in order to get to a place where we can understand children's behavior, especially children's behavior when they're under stress. Did you choose specifically to be a child life specialist so you could work with kids with cancer, or did you just make your way there? Wow. Um, My (laughs) route to child life uh, has an interesting story, I suppose. I hope it's interesting anyway. Um, My first hospital work experience was as a chaplain, a student chaplain. I was in theological school studying for the ministry, and I did a, a unit of CPE, Uh, clinical pastoral education. Through that process, well, I decided that maybe the ministry wasn't the right thing Mm -hmm. for me, and my supervisor was very wise. He said, you've always worked with children. You seem to like the hospital environment. I suggest you look into child life. So at that time, I returned to Boston where I was living, going to theological school. I found a college that had a master's degree in child life, 
and I finished my degree, and I haven't really looked back since. <laughs> so you can actually get a degree in child life? Yes. Um, and then is there certification? Yes, or? there is. There is. Uh, our professional organization uh, has a certification program, so the initials after my name are CCLS, Certified Child Life Specialist. And if someone was interested in this field, um, what would you tell them? I mean, how to how to start? How to get into the field? Mm-hmm. Students are often come to us and ask, "How do I get into the field, and what do I do?" I frequently sit down with students and talk with them, answer any of the questions they have, and I direct them to probably the best source of information, which is a website, childlife.org which is our professional organization. It talks all about the certification, the education that's required, the coursework that's required, the internship that's required, and the exam. What types of things do you do or in a typical day, or what types of things do you do to help a family, to help a child that is going through a cancer diagnosis? Right now I'm working in the proton beam facility. So oh. I see kids who are getting uh, proton beam radiation to treat their solid tumors. Uh, those families many times have already been through chemotherapy or they've already had surgery to remove most, if not all, of the tumor. So I don't have to do so much education about their diagnosis and getting used to that. But I do teach them about what happens when you come to the Jacobson building, what happens when you get proton therapy. Do you show them how big that machine actually is or does that scare children? <laughs> Because it's a big machine that you you don't see. That's really making depends it. <laughs> on the age, how you teach sure. the child. Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, and our younger patients are getting anesthesia for okay. each of their proton therapy uh, treatments. So really it's getting used to that process. Uh, if they have a port, port that needs to be accessed, that requires a needle poke on Mondays, and then we de-access on Fridays. So that's uh, one part of it. If you could have any job in the world, would you switch? I love my work. I would not do anything else. There have been times when I've been interviewed and I I say, don't tell Mayo Clinic, but I would do this for free. (laughs) (laughs) Shh. Right. Don't tell them. We've been talking about the role of child life specialists, how to take the scary out of being in the hospital. And if you'd like to know more, you can go to childlife.org. Our guest, Randy McKeeman. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll preview the upcoming documentary, The Mayo Clinic, Faith, Hope, Science, with the executive producer, filmmaker Ken Burns. And later on in the program, does aspirin help prevent heart attack and stroke? Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Mayo Clinic joins a coalition of seven hospitals in launching Civica Rx, a not-for-profit generic drug company that will help patients by addressing shortages and high prices of life-saving medications. Civica Rx first will seek to stabilize the supply of essential generic medications administered in hospitals, many of which have fallen into chronic shortage situations. These shortages put patients at risk. The initiative also aims to lower the costs and enable more predictable supplies of essential 
generic medicines, helping ensure that patient needs come first. Mayo Clinic's president and CEO, Dr. John Noseworthy, says this endeavor demonstrates the need for collaboration to solve the most complex healthcare challenges of today. I'm pleased to see our collective commitment to improving the health and well-being of millions of patients come alive through this mission-driven initiative. And in other news, now normally you think of bacteria as something bad that you should avoid, but turns out most of the bacteria inside your gut play an important role in keeping you healthy. That group of gut bacteria is called your microbiome. Dr. Perna Kashyap, a Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, says everyone's is unique to them based on factors like where they live, what they eat, and how they live their life. They're sort of our silent partners inside our intestines, Dr. Kashyap says. They will help produce vitamins. They help prime our immune system. They will help digest food, which we cannot digest, so they do a lot of important things. The microbiome can affect which diseases or infections you might get. It can also affect how well you gain or lose weight because your microbiome helps determine how well your body breaks down and absorbs calories from foods. And since everyone's microbiome is unique, that means every person responds to certain diets differently. Some people might lose weight on a specific diet while others don't. So if you're eating healthy and still having trouble losing weight, blame it on your microbiome. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Filmmaker Ken Burns has been making documentaries for almost 40 years. His films include The Civil War, Baseball, Lewis and Clark, The National Parks, America's Best Idea, and most recently, The Vietnam War. His films have won 15 Emmy Awards and two Oscar nominations. In September 2008, he was honored by the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Pretty impressive. Yeah, no kidding. Now Burns is tackling a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. This fall, his latest documentary, The Mayo Clinic, Faith, Hope, and Science, will air nationwide on PBS stations September 25th and 26th. We are honored to have Ken Burns in studio today to discuss his latest project. Welcome to the program. It's a thrill to meet you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We're all interested in knowing why you decided to do a documentary on our beloved institution, the Mayo Clinic. So I've been making films for 40 years, and they've all been about us, the U.S., us, um, what makes the United States tick? And sometimes there are events like the Civil War, the most important event in American history, I believe. Sometimes they're about seminal people in our lifetime, Thomas Jefferson, Mark Twain, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Lewis and Clark. Sometimes they're about institutions like baseball. I was drawn to the Mayo Clinic story, history, as a quintessential American subject in which to to, to not answer, but to further ask, deepen the question of who are we and what kind of people. There's something happened here uh, in the late 19th century that created what is arguably, and I'd be happy to argue, um, the greatest medical center on earth. And I was curious about how that took place. And the more I learned about how it took place, the more interesting and improbable and kind of utterly American it was in, in lots of ways that we don't kind of often consider. And so it's just been a delight. And, and I, and I tell you, this is as, as the Mayo Clinic is collaborative, so is this. So as you're thanking me or, or, or saying nice things about me, this is a collaborative effort of Chris Ewers, 
Christopher uh, Ewers and Eric Ewers and Julie Kaufman, writer David Blistein, and, and a whole bunch of people that worked very hard for the last few years to try to make this film. We think it's a pretty great, great place, too. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Shives is an orthopedic surgeon, so this is just his nighttime. He just kind well, of I'm moonlights. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is it that you found most intriguing? You said as, as time went by, you <clears throat> found things that surprised you. I, I I think it'll surprise everybody. Just the how the kind of the fortuitous founding of it between the sisters of St. Francis and W.W. Uh, Mayo, uh, the way in which certain decisions were made to put the patient first. It sort of seems obvious, but is not in fact the case in most of the healthcare that takes place in this uh, country to keep the records the same, to be a nonprofit institution. Medicine's now a big big profit business, uh, to be about education and research, about collaboration, to be on salary. Uh, the surgeons and the physicians are on salary here. Uh, that means there's no unnecessary tests. You're not enriched by ordering things. It, f- it fosters collaboration between people. All of these things, all keeping in mind a kind of larger ethical dimension about character and values uh, that emanates both from W.W. Mayo and his sons, Will and Charlie, uh, but also from the Sisters of St. Francis that's still here, that's still palpable and is part of the, the tradition. So there's a secret sauce here. And, and I don't think the recipe's written down anywhere. It's just they keep making it over and over again. And I felt privileged enough just to be able to get caught up in, in the Mayo's whirlwind for a few years. Was there anything in particular that you learned while you were making this documentary that really surprised you? Like, I, I didn't realize they did that or did, I didn't know that about the institution. I, just about everything. I mean, really? we don't start off to tell people what we already know. That, the last time I checked, is homework. <laughs> so we're in the business of sharing with our audience a process of our discovery. So I don't know what isn't, doctor, something that just at one point in the process just flabbergasted me. And and then, you know, stuff happens. Somebody says it's not the notes in music, it's the intervals between the notes. So sometimes just seeing a scene again and seeing the expression of, on a face or the swallow that shows a bit of anxiety on the part of a patient or a doctor uh, concerned. We have one doctor who comes very close to tears um, thinking about a patient that he had lost. And, and all of that together says something. Pretty incredible the way the institution has grown. I mean, you followed it from the very beginning, and now 64,000 employees, three different institutions around the country. It's, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's, it's incredible that the vision from the beginning is still intact, that it's able to do There's nothing that I know of that would suggest that you could take a father and his two young sons and have a practice and sort of believe in some certain things that are going against the grain and and you know on the edge of the frontier in the 19th century and that 150 years later it's still the model for what really works now has it changed and grown of course it has and it's had to understand uh, realities of a modern world, but at its heart, the values are still essentially there, and you can feel it. You can feel the ghosts of Will and Charlie here as you walk the halls, and people talk about them. The doctors know the histories. The doctors talk about the stories that the nuns have told them. The nuns talk about, this, about the teachers, the mentors that they had, the nuns that were their teachers. The nurses are trying to be as much like the nuns as they... And so all of a sudden you go, 
what's going on here? It's not just committing medicine. It's, it's creating some new way of doing it. And it's, it's been working. Everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what's funny about it. You know, we grew up in the Midwest, both Dr. Shives and I did. A lot of the professionals who work here come from all around the world. Um, we like to talk, if you twist our arm, about how great we think Mayo Clinic is. When we first heard that you were doing this film, there was a lot of us that said, we just can't believe that he's interested. We can't believe we're worthy. I'm not quite sure where it came from. I don't know why <laughs> you wouldn't think that the Mayo Clinic, which would arguably be, it's like saying Babe Ruth or the Beatles sure. or, you know, George Washington at the top of a list. Um, there are obviously great, great hospitals throughout the United States and the world, but you'd be hard pressed to point out something that was better. So uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's just the Midwestern modesty or insecurity. I don't know what it was. I grew up in the Midwest. Too in Michigan, yeah, Ann Arbor, um, in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor. and um, so I, I just think it's here, and and we and look, this is not. I didn't make a film for the Mayo Clinic. I made a film of the Mayo Clinic, and and it is also critical. And I don't mean there's stuff that's you know bad, bad stuff, but we're not. It's not a Valentine, so it's not a wet kiss. We're just trying to say, look, this is what happened, and it's interesting. And and this person, you know, it's ironic the way W.W. died, which mm-hmm. you see in the film. It's it's interesting why, you know, Will and Charlie had to stop uh, performing surgeries. And, you know, it's the story of how it was born in the tornado out of tragedy, as so many things, you know, some some destruction often plants the seeds for a new thing to be born. Possibly uh, because healthcare in this country is a pretty important conversation that needs to be had. That's what makes it more interesting to do uh, to cover Mayo Clinic's version of healthcare. Yeah, it, it is very interesting, and the problem is we should be having a conversation, and we're not. We are sidetracked by very simple, superficial politics that don't permit us to really have a conversation about what we owe each other. How do we take care of each other? What is the richest country? in the world owe its fellow citizens in terms of stuff. And we're pathetic uh, compared to the rest of, of the developed world in, in how we treat people. And sitting right in front of us um, is, is, is a really, really good example of how it might work. And it has all of these different ingredients. But it's, it's sort of like if you know the best chef who makes this best pie, you can get the recipe and you can do it and it will never be as good <laughs> as that great chef. So you just say, let me just have that person make that pie for me. And I think this is what Mayo and what I'm hoping the film will do is, is to restart this distracted, superficial conversation that we've been having about healthcare, meaning because you're for it, I'm against it or because she's subscribes to this, I'm going to be the exact opposite and say, well, wow, this actually works. Is there a model? Is there a template that can go beyond partisan politics and say, we all are going to get sick. We are all going to eventually die. We are all going to be caught up in a health care system. And it doesn't matter what sex you are, what race you are, how rich you are. It's all going to happen. Wouldn't it be great to have available to all of us at all times the best possible care? That would seem to be the continuation of democratic ideals that I think were permitted the Mayos to actually create the thing that they've created. 
Ken Burns talking about the upcoming Mayo Clinic documentary, Faith, Hope, and Science. So good to have you with us. You're uh, famous for all of the documentaries that you've done. I can't wait for you to see the, the film. If you're worried about, you know, your place in the world, you, I don't think you will after this because it's, um, it's really, a, I hope, um, a, a remarkable reflection of what the Mayo Clinic does so beautifully. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, are you taking an aspirin to prevent heart attack or stroke? A new study proposes it may not be necessary for all patients. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. You know, there are millions of Americans who are taking an aspirin every day to hopefully prevent a heart attack or a stroke. But some of the latest studies suggest that if you have never had a heart attack or a stroke, taking an aspirin a day may not be worth it, may not work as well as we thought. Time for a Mayo Clinic expert opinion. Joining us in studio is Mayo cardiologist, heart specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Dr. Kopetsky, good to have you back, especially today, because these new studies have come out that questioned whether or not people ought to be taking an aspirin every day if they've never had a stroke or a heart attack. What do you think? Thank you, Tom. The, uh, that's a very interesting question, and a couple of these studies that came out uh, came with conclusions that it didn't help. Well, it, it's not for everybody, that's for sure, but there are some people that help. Now, we know for years that aspirin reduces the risk of stroke in women, but not men, first stroke. Aspirin reduces the risk of heart attack in men, but not women. So men and women are equal, but we're different, obviously, in our response to aspirin. Now, in the studies you're talking about, a couple of things. One is the ones that were presented uh, in European uh, Congress of Cardiology. They tried to get people that were had at least a risk of 10% for a stroke or a heart attack over the next 10 years, and they enrolled them and found no difference. Well, they, what they found in retrospect was that... found that the aspirin didn't do anything with regard to prevention of stroke or heart attack. That's right. Okay. And what they found, though, was that they actually enrolled patients that only had a 9% risk of stroke or heart attack. So they enrolled lower-risk patients than they planned. Now, the guidelines in this country, in the U.S., are to recommend or consider aspirin for people that have a risk over 10%, which is the reason they did the study, over 10%. Okay. Uh, but if uh, if they didn't have a risk over 10%, it probably doesn't help them, and that's what the study showed. Okay, so how do you find out? You, you put the risk in, in percentage terms. Uh, how do you find out what your risk is? Yeah, that's a good question. There are a couple of places you can go online. You can go to the American College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association. Both have, they're, they're connected. And it is called the ACCAHA Risk Calculator Plus. You just type that into your, into your uh, search engine on your computer. Uh, and actually just look up uh, Risk Calculator Plus and it'll come up. And it'll ask you some questions. What's your blood pressure? What year were you born? What's your gender? Uh, what's your cholesterol? You do need to know your cholesterol levels. And you need to know your blood pressure? You need to know your blood pressure. Cholesterol. And, and cholesterol. Okay. And it'd be helpful to know if you're on medicines for blood pressure and things like that. Okay. Or if you have diabetes or on medicines for diabetes. Then you tell them this, and it will tell you what's your risk then for a fatal or a non-fatal heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years. Well, how does it know whether it's going to be fatal or not? Well, it doesn't. It just groups it all together. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's just all... All events. All right, and then you are saying that if that figure comes out to 10% or above, even if you've never had a heart attack or a stroke, you should consider taking an aspirin every day. You should consider taking an aspirin. However, 
there's always a risk of bleeding. We know that as you go through life, your risk of heart attack and stroke goes up. But as you go through life, your risk of bleeding on aspirin also goes up. The question is, what goes up faster? And its actual fact is that your risk of bleeding on aspirin goes up faster than your bleeding than your risk of heart attack or stroke. No kidding. So this is stomach <coughs> bleeding because the aspirin irritates the gastric lining, the stomach lining. Primarily, yeah. Or sometimes very rarely enter in your head bleeding. So how do you decide? It's helpful to talk to your provider, your primary care provider. There are um, certain apps out there, you know, bleeding apps. You can actually go on your phone and say, what's my risk of bleeding? We use it all the time in the hospital, on hospital service, because they're scientifically driven and found to be accurate. You mean, so how can how can an app tell you what your risk is of bleeding from taking an aspirin? Uh, it asks you, again, questions hmm. like, have you ever bled? Uh, do you have frequent nosebleeds? Do you take a lot of uh, medications for arthritis, like these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, like ibuprofen, because that increases your risk of bleeding? Do you drink alcohol to excess and fall down? Do you walk with a cane? Do you fall easily? So they can actually look and, and give a pretty good estimate. Hmm. So let me make sure I have this this correct. Um, you need to know what your risk is of a fatal or non-fatal heart attack or stroke. And you can figure that out by going to the American Heart Association or the American College of Cardiology websites. And right. then, then you put in what? Risk factor assessment? Yes. It'd be risk Calculator Plus. Risk Calculator Plus. Right. And then it'll ask you some questions, yeah. Yeah. and it will tell you what your risk is for a, a heart attack or a stroke in right. the ensuing 10 years. or In, in the ensuing the, 10 years. And the nice thing about that uh, particular web page, too, is you can say, well, what if I go on aspirin? What does my risk go down to? Mm. What if I have high blood pressure and I treat it? What does it go down to? What if I have diabetes and treat it? or high cholesterol and treat it, it'll actually tell you before and after. Now, these are all predictions. We can't predict an individual patient's. It's obviously uh, just an estimate, but it gives you a pretty good estimate. I've had patients that their risk is 35%. It goes down to 12% by treating their blood pressure, taking an aspirin, taking care of their uh, cholesterol. And when you say taking an aspirin, exactly what do you mean? How much? Baby aspirin, one adult aspirin, how much? Yeah, the study that was done, we just mentioned a minute ago, was 100 milligrams of aspirin. That's a European thing. We don't have that available here in this country. We're usually 81 or 162 or 325. And the studies have shown that 81 is really good for almost all people. There are some recent observational studies, which means they just looked at tens of thousands of patients, and found that people who were heavier maybe needed more aspirin, but that's not written in stone. All right, 81 is a baby aspirin, and baby. for most people that would be okay. Adult low-dose aspirin. Babies don't take the aspirin. Anymore, so. <laughs> All right, thanks very much, Dr. Kopetsky, for being with us. We've been talking about aspirin and aspirin a day to prevent heart attacks and strokes. we got the lowdown. Then basically, if, you're, if you can calculate your risk by going to the one of the websites that we mentioned, and your risk is 10% above or above, you ought to consider taking an aspirin every day. Dr. Kopetsky, thanks. Thank you, Tom. That's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.